If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Hi everyone, today on Horse Chats, we've got Will Faber. He's come before, certainly he's talked to us before about dressage, developing dressage through classical foundation training. We're going to talk to him today about the World Dressage Federation, why it was set up, what the plans are, and a little bit more in depth. But before I do that, I'd just like to remind you about International Horse College. The podcast is brought to you by International Horse College, and the vision of International Horse College is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect, and enjoy their horses and the horses appreciate, respect, and enjoy their people. Have a look now at the wide variety of horse-friendly courses at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, we'll go back to Will. How are you today, Will? I'm doing very well indeed, and I must say that, uh, you know, your uh, ideas there are exactly what we have in mind and what we're trying to do, you know, yes. is to bring back some sanity to the horse business. Yeah, complement each other very well. Yep. Now, Will... Tell us, you know, you sort of think World Dressage Federation, do we need another Dressage Federation? I know you've got the United States Dressage Federation, we've got Dressage Australia. Why do we need another Dressage Federation um, in addition to what we've already got? Well, really, it's to give people the opportunity. Now, I, I won't speak for Australia and what's happened in Australia because I'm not that familiar with it. I am familiar with the trends all over the world with the FEI. Um, we've seen... Basically, what we've seen in America is our organization, which is now called the United States Equestrian Team, I think they call themselves. They were used, they used to be called the American Horse Show Association. And we have the USDF. Now, a lot of people don't realize the history of that. The USDF was a total separate entity to the American Horse Show Association and was started um, by a man named Lowell Boomer back, I'm not sure exactly when, I would say late 60s, early 70s at the, at the latest. Um, and he ran it you know, with very uh, much classical ideas in mind and, and the correct, you know, um, um, education in dressage and the correct attitude towards the horses and, and this sort of thing. And unfortunately, after his death, I'm not sure at what point it got turned over and became part of the American or a wing of the American Horse Shows Association. And that's when everything really began to go downhill in terms of what we saw you know, in, in the dressage ring. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way about dressage, but we've seen dressage, you know, in the last 20 years especially, and this started about 30 years ago, um, we saw this downward spiral of, of, um, of what was expected of horses. Because for years, I started riding dressage, you know, in the mid-60s probably, and, uh, and showed competitively for 40 years, something like that. And, uh, and students. And what we saw was this, um, this sort of general decline in what was acceptable, because we saw for many years, from my first 20 years in the, in the dressage world and in the USDF, you would go to a horse show and there would be, you know, a lot of people in training level and first level and second level. Unfortunately, in the test, they started calling for a collected trot at second level, and at least in the USDF, I don't know what they, you know, that's why I'm speaking for, for sure. us, but I think yeah. similar things happened elsewhere, but I, my experience has been with them. So we saw this decline, no one was getting past second level. I mean, for 20 years, I was a dressage trainer, and we saw how, you know, there would be hundreds of people in these lower level classes, and no one could get beyond second level. For the first thing, they should have never been requiring, like, three-day event don't call it a collected trot at sec, you know at a level like second level you know they call it a working trot and so th it became very confusing as to what collection was you know so no one was ever really quite achieving it of course nobody had super horses in those days they had you know the best of dressage horses when i started were still liposomers and things like that the german warm bloods were mostly very heavy sort of jug-headed horses that you know were kind of unpleasant to ride back in those days. I mean, they were big and strong and powerful, um, but they had little elegance and you know, people could get away with kind of riding them in the way that they did in many cases, which, which was very forcefully. 
But we saw this move away going all the way back to the 50s. People don't realize that our two greatest lights in dressage of the 20th century were Egon von Neidorf in Germany and Nuno Oliveira in Portugal. And they were both very similar in how they approached things in their, in their early days. Now, Nuno became very confusing later on because he just sort of stopped really training and collecting money from people. I love the man, but people need to know the truth that, you know, there was the Nuno Oliveira of his heyday. And then there was the Nuno Oliveira that after he actually was um, uh, retired and came out of retirement only because he needed to make money. And uh, what we saw after then, we saw a lot of people coming out of him. I'm not, and, I, and I studied with him for over a five-year period, and really over about a 10-year period in, in all from the time I first started going to his clinics here in the United States. But anyway, my point is that no one was getting past second level. And then all of a sudden, everything started to decline. All of a sudden, what, our, what we needed became less. And all of a sudden, we had these super dressage horses super movers, as you call them. So the, so what we saw in dressage was this move. I mean, to me, dressage today is a breed show. It's a breed show for a particular type of European warm blood horses that move in this extravagant kind of manner. And if you don't have one of those, that's what's being judged more often today than not, rather than what they're actually doing. 30 years ago in America, if you rode into the ring with a horse behind the bit, are forced against your hand, you know, the judges would, you'd end up with a 20%. You'd be laughed out of the ring if you would. Today, we have horses going to the Olympic Games, scoring 90% that are completely hollow, forced against the hand. Some of them even look lame. In the last couple of Olympics, I was amazed at how many lame horses I saw. And no one's, including the one that won. And uh, all this was just being looked aside because it was what they wanted to win, you know. So, this is what we want to get to with the World Dressage Federation is a whole new federation where we get back to this being about the training and about the relationship between the riders and the trainers. When I started in dressage, no one, dressage trainers rarely had horses in training where they rode them for people. You know, when I started dressage, dressage was about the people who were really interested in, in studying deeper. You know, we thought of, you know, dressage as being you know, a much more intellectual and something that you really had to study, like the difference in playing guitar. I think you noted before that I'm a musician. Well, there's lots of musicians who've made millions of dollars who can only play three chords out of tune, you know. But if, if you look at many horses today, to me, it sounds out of tune. I look at them and they're, the horses are out of tune. They're overflexed in the neck. You know, they're, they're throwing their front legs out. The hind legs are trailing behind them. And all these things are being scored massively high as long as you have one of those super mover horses. So getting back to the collection, what happened? So no one was getting past second level. So then all of a sudden we had these super mover horses that started coming in. They've always been expensive. You know, there's always some wealthy person that started buying these things. First it was 50,000, then 100,000. As you know now, horses are selling, dressage horses can sell for millions of dollars, you know? Um, and it became a thing where now we have trainers. For my first 20 years, I never trained horses for people. I trained the trainers to train their own horses. Because most people in dressage wanted to do it themselves. They wanted, that's what dressage was about, was learning to be a trainer, if you will. That makes sense, you know? So now we started having these barns full of, of you know, dressage trainers where the trainers ride the horses for the people and the people rarely get on them in many cases or get on them. And I went through a little bit of those myself where I worked for some very, I was a private trainer for about 25 years for very wealthy people. And I walked away from that task because I got tired of just setting these people up, watching them, you know, win ribbons and then ruining their horses, <laughs> if you will. So. You know, I want to get back to that place where, you know, people really want to learn themselves. I'm not interested that you can hire some trainer to get up and beat up your horse and force it into some phony frame. And then you get on it and hope it holds together long enough to get around the ring, if you will. And that's kind of what we've seen happen, which means that the people who just want to really enjoy their horses and do the best for them, they may not have a million dollar mover. But, you know, if a horse is sound and capable of, of being trained, meaning sound enough of sound in body and uh, mind and body, that is, you know, that they can withstand the pressures of training, which shouldn't be that pressurized, you know, that, that anybody should be able to uh, ride dressage and do well and be able to compete against others who, who are with that same idea that, you know, it's the horse that is trained the best, that is, that is exhibiting, you know, those 
those uh, uh, qualities that we used to think of in dressage horses, horses being relaxed, horses moving over their backs, horses flowing and swinging through their back. You know, instead of what we are now seeing more and more is horses being pulled into tightened frames, overflexed in the neck, front legs are being thrown out. And, and of course, there's this idea that, you know, if you talk to most people, unfortunately, in most of the so-called show stuff that goes on, and that is also in Western and, and happily, we're seeing more Western people getting involved. We're seeing Western dressage and this kind of thing. And some of it's better better than not. But, you know, that being that point that we want to bring this back to something that people can do for themselves on the horses that they have, enjoy them, and be able to compete on a worldwide level without it costing a fortune, if you will. And that's part of the thing that a lot of people don't realize what happened to our sport. In the mid-90s, we had two things that happened. Um, we had... Um, actually, that was about 85. The American Horse Show Association, for the first time, hired a professional CEO to run it, um, whose only interest was getting more people and more people paying fees. You know, that became their goal. So everything to get more people in, we had to dumb the sport down so that we could have people moving up into the upper levels. As I say, it was not uncommon. My first 20 years in dressage, it was not uncommon to go to a horse show and there would be two horses at Grand Prix if, they were, if there were that many. So, Willie, you're about to launch the World Dressage Federation. What are you doing? How are you going about this launch? Well, the first thing I have been doing is promoting the idea with all of our people online. Um, you know, my company is called Arch Ride, and we have a very strong following online, um, Arch Ride, that, uh, fans and followers as well, which is a site on Facebook. So we have quite a Facebook presence as well as the YouTube channel. And uh, so we, so it's become a very great community of people working together, especially the Archer Ride fans and followers site, which is a site that you actually have to ask to join and answer a few questions that you will be civil if we let you in, <laughs> things like that. Because the basic how many people want to, you know, what do they, what do they call them, trolls? They're just getting on to start commotion with people, you know, to, to say things they know are going to wind up people. So, so we have a few questions like that to ask to join that. But, but we have a very strong following there, um, thousands of people and 10,000 people or something in, on that site alone. So if people want to go to that site, they go to facebook.com. Now it's Art to Ride, so it's A-R-T, the number two, and then R-I-D-E if they wanted to search for that on Facebook. Right. And if they, they'll find an Art to Ride Facebook site and that there's also one. There's actually three of them. Uh, there's one in Australia. There's one in Germany. There's one in there's five or six of them around the world. There's one in South America. There's one in uh, uh, Africa, amazingly enough, England, uh, many other countries. So but if you find one that's Art to Ride fans and followers is the one that I communicate with everybody myself. I mean, so that's the one where I'm constantly putting things up and talking to people about and we also have, you know, within Archer Ride, we have our associate trainer situation. There's 40 associate trainers around the world that I work with um, who are all part of this and are going through my, I'm teaching my Archer Ride associate trainers to be judges as well. So I'm taking them all through kind of a judging program. And right now what we're doing is we have written the first, the, the, the levels of the World Dressage Federation. It starts with foundation level and there's six foundation level tests. And then we do working level. That means when horses are working over that back. And then we have a collection level, which takes us up into Grand Prix. And then we have mastery level, which is, of course, the FEI levels. Um, so it's broken down that way. I have completed all the tests for the foundation level. And what we're trying to do is create tests that really, really uh, more mimic how we ride and train. Rather than, unfortunately, what happened in some of the tests in the past, um, which actually, it's not that the testers are bad. The tests are actually pretty good. They're just not being judged correctly. Um, and I was very excited when in the 90s, you know, they was when they first put all the stretches into the test, which, of course, to someone who understands this work, they put all those stretches into the test to prove the correct training of the horses at these lower levels, to prove that you could still let go of the reins and they'd seek the contact with the bridle, right? Instead of just putting their head straight in the air, um, which is what happens when you fight with horses' mouths. So the tests were pretty good, but they started expecting people to do um, too many illogical things too soon. Like you really needed to have almost a horse rate for collection to be able to even go and score in their training level test. So what I've tried to do with my lower level test in the foundation list level. We actually have tests that are nothing but walking. The first two tests are all entirely walking. 
and then the next two add train add trotting in and the next and the final two in that foundation level add cantering in as well but in a very progressive way we allow the horses to have more time into the stretches for instance where in the older tests, they um, in the USDF tests, for instance, they allow one, you know, there's usually one circle in the stretch in each direction, which always have a coefficient of two, which I agree with they should, because it's what actually proves that the horse is correctly trained and why they put those things into the test. But wh what happened was, as I said, I was very excited when in the 90s they put all these things. And I thought, well, people are going to actually have to learn how to ride in order to do this. But what we saw was a rejection of this by the trainers. The trainers just telling people, well, when you get to that point, it's not important, just let go of the reins and kind of, you know, let their neck out a little bit, which is what you emotionally see in horse shows, which is too bad because once again, as I said, it is that correct stretch, the horse following the contact with the hand that shows you that the horse is correctly trained. And once again, why they put all those in the test. So. Once again, we've tried to write tests in our developing tests that more mimic and give horses, especially young horses, the opportunity, for instance, our first two classes, they're only in the walk. So you have an opportunity and not only in, are they in the walk, but at the end of your test, you actually dismount in the ring and stand there with the horse and then lead it out of the ring. You know, so you, so horses can go and begin to have a good experience rather than what we so often see in the show world today. I can't tell you how many times I was expected, you know, as a trainer, you know, with a big barn full of horses, to, just, to take every horse in the barn, no matter what level it was, to horse shows. And people just expected you to do it and, and try to make it work. Well, you know, I stopped doing that a while back. I mean, I always made it work pretty well, if you will, as I've won Horse of the Year awards at every level except the Grand Prix and, and trained many people up into the FEI levels that have won their medals and this sort of thing. But you know, we want to get uh, we want to get back to that foundation that we're not seeing. I mean, we shouldn't see people like we're seeing on free riders now, you know, hanging on the mouths of the horses, fighting them in the ring. Horses overpressed, people spurring horses so their blood's running down their sides. You know, some of our top riders in the last year, you know, and even what we saw with the FEI last year, um, you know, which I've been talking about this for a while, that people have to understand that. You know, people that who, whose motivation has not been so much the welfare of the horse has gotten, these kind of people have gotten into the sport. For instance, last year, the president of the FEI had, after the last World Cup, uh, uh, had to resign because her husband got caught drugging a horse at the World Equestrian Games. I mean, and, and this woman was the president, you know. And, uh, you know, how did she become the president of the FBI, you know, because she's princess so-and-so? Well, you know, now she's living in hiding from her husband, who I guess is, you know, I don't know what's going on there. But but once again, this is what I'm talking about, how these elements have crept into the people running the sport. In America, a lot of the people, if you look at who's on all these boards, it's all breeders, you know, because they want they want to keep dressage the way it is so they can sell young horses quickly they can put them into phony frames and sell them for a lot of money. And two years later, they're lame and the person's buying another one. You know, and this is what we've seen so many of our, our equestrian sports turn into. And this is, once again, what we want to get back to with the World Dressage Federation. Now, getting back to your question of how we're launching it, the websites are almost done. So I have completed the first levels of the dressage test. And I've asked for people on our fans and followers site um, to send me in uh, sample tests. So many of my associate trainers and their students are now riding through the test and I'm scoring them and doing extensive voiceover, like how I do it. I, I let people, I let you see the test first without me saying anything. And then I talk you through everything I'm seeing. And then I score the test for you, you know, and, uh, through even all the marks at the end of the test and that sort of thing. So you can see exactly so I'm doing lots of those. I've done about 10 of them so far, and we'll be doing lots of those, and those will all be on the website. But for anybody interested in joining our fans and followers site there, and uh, that's where I'm posting them right now. But all these are going to be, we are creating a whole educational library for the World uh, Dressage Federation. So all those uh, educational videos that we produce will be available free of charge and that sort of thing, You know, as I'm doing one on the scoring. And one of the biggest things I'll point out that it, I think is going to make the biggest difference about all of this is I have created a new scoring system, if you will. So the scoring system in the past was that you had each movement got a got you know had a possibility of ten points, correct, in each box, right? And some of them have two. 
but the problem was like when I first started riding in dressage, we used to consider that, you know, if you didn't break 50% that you weren't ready to be in a class and you should go back a class kind of thing. But what we've seen in the last few years, and I remember this started in the 90s, and I remember being in a show office and someone coming into the office and you know, yelling at the person who put on the show, which was me, you know, <laughs> that the judge had written something bad on their test. Like they had no idea that the judge was there. What? And I said, well, would you think the judge is just going to write nothing? The point is what we used to think about it. You never had to write anything on the test if the score was at least 5%. We used to think the judges had to write something if if it was below, because we considered a five as being sufficient. And if you didn't score a five, then the judge was to clarify why you didn't at least get a five. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So this became a very vague thing. So as people started riding, as I said, 30 years ago in dressage, if you rode in on a hollow horse horse or an over-tense horse or an over-flexed horse, you would you would get a 20% or a 30% or get laughed out of the ring, or in some cases they would you know ring the bell. You know, I said I couldn't believe how many lame horses I saw at the last Olympic Games that no one was ringing the bell. I mean, the horse that won in the dressage was dead lame in the first test it rode. It couldn't even flex its right hock at all. 20 years ago, the bell would have been rung and the girl would have been out. Now she comes back the next day and the horse was miraculously sound. Well, how do you think it was miraculously sound? I can't say this for sure, but I know I've seen this myself at many horse shows. What people don't realize today is that joint injections are legal this is how they're getting by. A veterinarian can come to your horse show and shoot painkiller, you know, and this hyaluronic acid directly into your horse's joint, and it's legal for them to do it. Well, what people don't even realize what it is. It's nothing but painkiller and inflammation reducer being shot directly into the horse's joint. And any person, if you've talked to any doctors who talk about these things, they will tell you, like with humans, I was just talking to a human doctor, they say you're not allowed legally to inject any joint on a human being in America more than three times or because it will destroy the joint. And that's what's happening to all these horses in dressage today. They're being kept going on these joint injections that the veterinarians have sadly convinced them that this is a cure. They are not a cure at all, folks. They're nothing but legal drugging. So this is the kind of stuff we've seen going on and what we want to get away from. So getting back to my point about the scoring and how it's working. So the way I have... I have to clear this out, to clarify this, our judges have to know that you are, that the horse is working correctly over its back. So if we talk about every, every score has a possibility of 10 points, right, that you can accumulate. The first point that you get is for whether the horse is working over its back or not. For instance, in the test, they call for a working trot, right? You know that term, yes. right? Working trot. Most people today don't understand what it means. They think it's the same thing as any other trot. Working trot means working over the back. A horse that's hollow is not in a working trot. And therefore, you are not doing the movement that the test is, is asking for. And you should get a zero on the movement. With the scoring system as it stands now, it's this vague idea about, you know, it's not really clarified to the judges, you know, or from the judges what that is. You know, in other words, why did this person get a seven? If the horse is hollow and flipping its front legs out, it's not in a working trot. So it should be a zero. So my point being, and this element is what will allow people to train all kinds of different horses and be judged on the same criteria. Because, you know, if you come out, you can be on the most million dollar horse in the world but if it's going hollow, you're going to get a zero on every movement because you're not actually doing what what it is being asked for. So in this way, you know, we get back to the foundation. We get the foundation of dressage and what it was supposed to be about back into the sport and back into our competitions. Now, just to give you the rest of my scoring system. So the first point you get is for whether the horse is working over its back again. Now, the next section, you have three points possible for rhythm. And you can think of it this way, A, a horse losing rhythm at times, one, a horse in good steady rhythm, two, a horse in perfect rhythm that we could call cadence, you would get a three. Relaxation, same thing, a horse not completely relaxed, one, a horse not steady, but not completely relaxed, a two, horse completely relaxed and in the zone, you'd get a three. So that's how you can make up your difference. So if you think about it this way, if you come into the ring with a horse that's over its back, and even if you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the last the last element of that, which is accuracy in the ring, which is your ring craft. So you have three points possible for that. So once again, if you come in 
And the horse is working over its back. And if you want to look at it this way, it has a fairly sloppy ride with a fairly sloppy rhythm, fairly sloppy relaxation and fairly sloppy direction. You could still get a four, you know, but I think, you know, with deductions for anything that would be extreme, in other words, you know, a sudden loss of motion or something like that, you know, coming completely off the bridle. In the normal way that we used to think about it, the one or two point reduction there. But getting back to this idea of a horse is being able to recognize whether horses are doing what we conceive of. And the rules in dressage have not changed. Last year, I had a, a woman come to one of our clinics and she had just graduated from the USDF judges program, paid a lot of money to go through the program. And she said, well, I want you to know that during the program, everything that we learned for the weeks of the class was exactly what you say. And after we got to the end of the class and we had graduated, they took us all into a room. And this is at the USDF, set them all down and said, what we have to tell you now, however, is that if you judge correctly and judge the way we have taught you, you will never be hired. So even at the USDF, they're telling the judges this. They know this. So the only judges anymore who get hired are the ones who will hand out these ridiculous scores where people are getting these 90% scores and even coming in. I mean, I've seen scores that were in the 70s and 80s that were absurd. I mean, they, that were laughable tests, but they were on a million-dollar horse or half a million or whatever you know, the case may be, or in some cases, $4 million horses or $10 million, as you know, we saw with that uh, totalist horse which I'm happy about. I feel very sorry for that horse, but, but I think it was part of the turning point that people started looking at dressage in a different way. You know, when suddenly we have a dressage horse selling for what was it? $32 million or something like that in American U S dollars. I mean, this is absurd. And what, what did they get for that $32 million? I think they went to five horse shows and finally retired the horse because it, it was probably lame when they bought it, you know, but anyway, you get that idea. So this is the idea with the scoring system and getting judges who will, stand by their scores and who can recognize that that horses are actually in the gates that are actually called for in the test, you know, and not this, you know, as I said, getting back to what, when this change happened, when people started being able to afford these very expensive dressage horses, and I'm calling it going back all the way to the seventies when this whole imported horse thing began, and, you know, before that we had thoroughbreds, we had quarter horses, we had Arabs and we had, you know, various range horses and we had liposaunders and that's what people had to ride dressage my first dressage horses were all uh thoroughbreds because i i was grew up in kentucky and that's what we did fox hunting horses hunters and jumpers were all thoroughbreds before anybody heard of these war bloods right but so the breeding kind of made it it's like we've seen the jumper world today most of these horses we see in the jumper world today if they were trained well they'd be jumping you know two feet higher than they are jumping and they would be lasting for 20 years like to me, the ideal horseman is the person who can compete and keep their horse sound for the longest time. I, like Marcus Enning after the last Olympics retired his horse that he'd been showing for 20 years at Grand Prix. To me, that's a real horseman. I mean, anybody can just buy, you know, like buying cars. You just buy another one and this one wears out. You know, like I used to say about, you know, they would give cars to people maybe who weren't so educated and they just drive them until... You know, the oil ran out and blow up and they'd go buy another one, right? And but that, that's the mentality that we saw creep into the horse world. And that's what we're hoping, once again, to bring back a sport with the World Dressage Federation that will be accessible to everybody with a lot of educational things. Um, now, a lot of people, I don't want people also to think that, you know, because I have art to ride, I have a lot of clients, I have a lot of trainers, and I, I teach a lot of people. But it isn't just about this. I mean, about me, I want the World Dressage Federation is much more, it's open to anybody who wants to ride correctly and trains correctly. So it's not about, you don't need to be an art to ride person. This is one thing I want to emphasize that, you know, you, anybody who wants to ride correctly and follow correct principles in their course and uh, develop them that way, will be able to find an outlet for what they do. Instead of, in so many cases, I've seen people have beautiful rides on horses that went perfectly well and get, you know, beat by a landslide by somebody riding upside down horse because everybody knew that that client paid $500,000 for that horse, you know, and that's how it all, how all works and what we want to get away from. So does that all make sense? It does. It does. You know, bringing people in and you've got a couple of tests in walk, that really appeals to a wide audience. You know, there are people around that say, I just want to walk. You know, they might 
get yeah. the horse the exercise, do some trot, canter, you know, on the lunge, do whatever. And it often happens when people are older, returning to riding, or people have an injury, or they've lost confidence, or and just young green horses. I'll just walk through this test and, you know, give the horse a good experience dismounting in the ring. So you're really appealing to wide audience. If someone said to you, what is the World Dressage Federation? Just as a um, description, you know, I mean, I know on your page and I don't know if we're supposed to do it because you haven't actually launched yet, but it is World Dressage Federation and you talk about the organisation, but can you just talk a little bit, you know, to summarise the mission and the beliefs about the, you know, classical foundation training and, and just summarise that, what World Dressage Federation is if people aren't going to your page at the moment? Well, the World Dressage Federation, the idea of it, its goal is to bring correct foundational training back into dressage work through all of the levels and bring back, you know, the principles that people like me grew up with. I mean, I, as I say, I feel very sorry. You know, most people, if you learn how to ride, unless you were with somebody exceptional and they're few and far between, in the last 30 years, we have a whole, we have three generations of young people who rode up, who have you know, have grown up thinking and being told and even by the sport itself and the officials in the sport that you ride a horse by hanging onto its mouth and pulling its head back at you and holding onto it for dear life, you know, and, uh, and trying to force it through these movements. And this is what we want to get away from. So our goal is to bring back correct classical foundational training. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. So Will, why now? You know, I mean, I can understand that you're frustrated and you can see things, but is it in particular because, you know, about the whole delivery, because I'd like you to talk about that and how people can do this online, you know, perfect for people caught in COVID and not wanting to travel, travel their horses uh, or not able to in some places. Is that why it is now or was it just timely that, um, you know, you were getting to the stage where you were just a bit frustrated and you said, right, I'm going to do something about this? Well, I've actually been talking about this for quite a number of years now, and it's the works for this have actually been in the works for about three years. Uh, but and, and part of why, when you say why, because I suddenly have the time, I'm home. I mean, over the last five years, I've been traveling the world kind of nonstop. So because of the COVID-19, I've been trying to get this done for a long time, but my schedule is just so insane that I just wasn't getting it done. So with this lockdown that we've had, it's really been allowing me to uh, to take advantage of that and move forward. The websites now for the World Research Center are almost finished. Um, they will, I would say, they would be launched within well within the month, let's say. And our first horse show we're shooting for, and on, I'm talking about horse show online horse show will be uh, September, I think, is the first one that will be where people. And once again, the idea is that you'll have a time block you will be expected to have a you know a, a date stamp and you'll have like a window there'll be a two-week window or a one-month window for you to videotape yourself and uh and the only the video has to be continuous so there can't be editing in it that sort of thing and as a way of get starting so it is that it's it's been it is timely because i think people are not wanting to travel or can't travel as well as we're getting especially for people who you know um the the horse showing thing became has become so ridiculously expensive. I have no idea what it's like where you are, but I'm sure it's very expensive. Here in the United States, it's got I mean, just to go to a couple of a little dressage show and go in a couple of classes is going to cost you a thousand bucks for the day by the time it's over with, you know. So it's become extremely expensive for people, and uh, and then there's you know just that thing of having the dangers of traveling. I mean, I spent forty years of my life traveling with horses all up and down 
the East Coast and across the United States and this sort of thing. And quite frankly, if I never had to put another horse in another trailer, I would be happy. You know, I was uh, I was happy that I walked away from and my horses walked away from difficulties. Like I had someone who was driving one of my trucks and the, the trailer came off and flipped over on the freeway with horses in it. And amazingly, all those horses walked away from that, you know. Um, but I've had, well, I've walked away from sort of many of those things that go, gee, if I never had to put a horse in another trailer, you know what I'm saying? I would be happy having seen all that so many for so many years. And, you know, I don't expect it to happen. But but the point is, it, it's very nice to be able to show from home. And that's the idea, the timing and the expense. I think we have, as, as Peter Horobin, the great uh, Australian saddle maker, said to me not long ago, he said, you know, there's a lot more people who just have a horse and want to enjoy it, said, you know, I don't care if uh, if the if uh, the wealthiest people buy my saddles, because there's a lot more of these people who just have a good horse and they care about them and they want to do it right. So I think that it's, it's that mentality um, that we want to get back to and give people an opportunity to do something. And that camaraderie, if, uh, if people join our Facebook sites, for instance, and now there will be, I haven't put it up yet, but there will be a Facebook site that's just for the World Dressage Federation. Because I do, once again, I want other trainers who aren't involved with me. I mean, I don't consider myself, you know, I see lots of people who are doing lots of things along these lines. I was just contacted last week uh, by one of your Australian judges, actually, who had heard the previous podcast. His name is Peter Shaw, a lovely man who we've spoken a few times on the phone since last week. And he's a three-day event judge. And uh, he, he had heard me talking about, you know, how much I think the three-day event riders are doing better than the dressage riders. I see better dressage at three-day, and that was always not the case. I mean, for years, the, the dressage that you saw at the three-day events was was pretty bad in many cases, except for those few exceptional people like, you know, Mark Todd from New Zealand over there. And there were always a few, but, you know, now, as I'm saying, uh, what I was saying in my last podcast with you is that I see better dressage riding going on in the three-day eventing than I see in the, in the so-called pure dressage ring. So... So anyway, this is what we're doing, um, and I'm hoping to have a Facebook site and bring many people who just all have the same idea. They said, I'm not the only person who wants to see this happen, <laughs> you know, and I think there's lots of people who have been frustrated by it, who have just kind of thrown up their hands. Like, you know, I I spent years just doing my own thing of, you know, tra being a trainer for very wealthy people, only doing their horses, never leaving their estate or whatever the case may be, because I just did, and just doing my thing and taking their horses to horse shows. But it just got to be very lonely. I, you know, I want to get back to enjoying horses with my friends again, like I did growing up and fox hunting and all that kind of thing, which I still believe, like Henry Wynne Malin, the great, the great trainer for the Queen of England for so many years, and and uh, Grand Prix uh, gold medalist, you know, and uh, him talking about how he could never consider a horse being correctly trained if it could go Grand Prix, but you couldn't fox on it. Well, it wasn't a trained horse, and I kind of grew up with that mentality of people that this was just something that is part of correct training. But a good racing trainer is a you knows how to knows how to work horses over their backs and not kill them in the process. You know, as whether you're jumpers or western, whatever the case may be, it's all the same. Horses are either moving over their backs and protecting their joints, or they're being ridden hollow and their joints are being destroyed. It's as simple as that. You know, in in every sport. You know, and even that idea that you can't overdo things. You know, that's one of the things I would limit. And now we will ultimately start to have live shows as well but we are starting off with these we're going to have four online shows a year as i said as the as the need comes and the interest is there we will start having horses and of course when we can again <laughs> and we're still not sure when that's going to be but uh, so i think the timing is right on on all these levels you know and uh, so that's and uh, once again the covid19 has given me the time to actually be home and have the time to actually put all this together because it's an enormous task and uh, to, to do it all, uh, many of my students and associate trainers. Just go over the four levels again. Foundation level, so working level, collection level, and then master, you know, which would be, which would take you to Grand Prix. How are they going to differ from the United States Dressage Federation? You know, we've talked about the, you know, the early ones, the walking, the dismounting, but if you say these ones, how are they different then? to the United States Research Federation, you know, because our listeners are thinking, mm, do I get involved here? Do I stay where I am? What do I do? What's different, you know, if you're going to if you're going to say these tests are different? What's in them that's not in the other tests or different to the other tests? 
I think that much that what I've tried to do is create tests, especially at these lower levels. Now, as they go up in the level and get into collection, they will they will be much more similar to one another. But for instance, once we get to working level, which is the next level of foundation, they will start traditionally like you would have said a first level or you know, second level, third level. Um, I think in the United States at fourth level, start cantering into the ring. But before that, it's trotting. So same kind of thing. So the the amount of walk that we do in the levels, you know, going up, but there will always be walk. You know, I don't know if you know about this, but in the last few years, there's been a big push by Grand Prix riders. They want to take walk out of Grand Prix. Now they want to take it out because you can clearly see when horses are badly trained, where you see it more than, especially the uneducated eye, you see it in the walk because you see how lateral these horses walk. And how hollow they are. That's what happens when you hollow a horse's back. It becomes very lateral in its walk. It starts walking like a camel. And so many of these upper-level dressage horses, that's how they walk, and they want to get that taken out. So I, I never want to, you know, uh, to dumb everything down. And that's what I say. That's the biggest problem. It's not that things are going to be so different here, but with this scoring system, the way I have devised it. You know, you can't come in and ride a horse upside down and still walk out with a 50 or 60 percent test. It's not going to happen. You know, you're going to get, you know, if the horse isn't in a working trot, you're going to get a zero on every movement. And as I said, that's what led to it gave too much leeway in the subjectivity of what dressage was to end us up to where we are now. I mean, I'll give you an example. My horse uh, that I won my silver medal on. I was horse of the year at fourth level on him. I was horse of the year at Priest and George on him. And I was horse of the year at Intermediaire on the horse. When to get my silver medal, which is four scores, you know, two scores at fourth level, two scores at at, at uh, Priest and George, above 60%, right? So my horse won. I was the winning horse in my region, okay? So I was the, the regional champion, and it took me two years to get four scores of 60%. That's how hard it used to be. So I'm not somebody, that wasn't somebody, that's somebody who was winning. I mean, my horse was the winningest horse in the, in the region, if that makes sense. So... This is why all these things, you know, when I got my silver medal, there were probably 10 people in America that had one. Now they hand them out like candy because the scores, you know, are handed out. Unless you come in the ring and just totally fall on your head or something, you know, you get in these upper levels in America anyway. People are walking out, you know, in other words, a really bad test is still getting a 75 percent. You know, which is when again you see my point is so now everybody has silver medals, everybody has gold medals. You go and buy yourself a upside down, you know, old Priest and George dressage horse or Grand Prix horse, and you ride it through three tests, and now you're a gold medalist. You know, so the so the medals don't even mean anything to me anymore. I mean, and it, and it was very important to me 30 years ago when I was trying to get them because you know it was it was important and it was it meant something to me as a professional. Now to me it means nothing. You know, I hardly even tell people that I have it because. It's not a meaningful thing. So this is, once again, what people can expect is is fairness. I want to get back to fairness and camaraderie in the sport <laughs> and uh, where we're all enjoying it and the horses are enjoying it. And, and that's what we're rewarding, not just the fact that, you know, I see so much of the horse world today has just, if you <laughs> excuse them, it's turned into a silly parade of wealth. You know, whoever can afford, like, saw the guy you know who was running for president Mitt Romney here over in the United States and why he's running for president he's bought some you know million dollar Grand Prix horse that he's got somebody showing it and it's like you know what does that mean all that means is that you've got a million dollars to throw away and did the guy get anywhere on the horse no you know he didn't come in a year later the horse was gone another million dollars thrown away you know I go back uh the last the horse that um this horse named Kennedy was bought for this rider over here in America who had been for the Olympics six times and embarrassed himself, embarrassed America six times in the show ring. They bought him that, the, the, that horse. Kennedy was ranked fourth in, fourth in the world when they bought it for him to ride at the next Olympic Games. He came in like 16th or something. But it was kind of an awakening moment, people. You see this person that you thought was the, you know, one of the greatest trainers in America who's done this over and over again and destroys every horse he's ever taken to the Olympic Games is gone within months of that. You know, you never see them again. They go to the Olympic Games with him and they're gone from history, you know, because they're fried, their brains are completely fried, you know. So anyway, this is what we want to get back to. Yeah. So the whole, you know, I mean, I understand the fairness, camaraderie, you know, bringing back the correct classical foundation training. What about goals for the Federation? You know, we've sort of got the overview, but... 
Where do you see this going? Do you think that it will get adopted by the FBI? You know, I mean, what are we working towards? Is this saying this is the correct training you should be doing before you get to the FBI levels? So it's like an alternate to get to those levels? Right. I mean, if you go if you go and read, for instance, the actual printed German, for instance, the German handbook of Frisage from the German Federation, right? It says everything that I say in it. You know, if you look, if you read now, I haven't read the American rules. I don't know if they've just stripped everything out of it. But same thing in the American horse show season. I mean, for instance, a hunter in America, do you know what American hunters are? They're show ring hunters horses, you know. Uh, they used to be described exactly as a first-level dressage horse in the rule book. This is what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be swinging over their backs freely and swinging through. Now, unfortunately, what happened in the hunter world is they started teaching this way of jumping. I'm sure you've seen it, where the kids are taught to lay down on the neck of the horse and they hold on to the mane with their necks way up the horse's mane and they literally lay on the neck of the horse. Well, if a horse is jumping over its back and you jump in that manner, it'll jump you right out of right out of the saddle. You literally ran up on your head. And many kids and many uh, I have known many adults who've gone over to America, people that, you know, I've seen them ride and they're telling me that they're going to Europe to buy horses. The next thing they come back and they're in they're, they're in a sling or they're in a wheelchair because they got on a horse that wasn't jumping flat. So same what happened in America jumping with the hunter horses, they started letting them jump flat because if you can't jump on the neck of the horse and jump a horse that's going to jump over its back because you're too far forward in motion so it just pitches you right off so that's what we had happen here in america so all these jumping horses started being taught to be flat jumpers if you notice so many of them they run them to the base of the fences and then they climb up the fences and they get by with that because of how talented these horses are today I mean, the average jumping horse, you know, today, these warm bloods, especially if you buy them from Holland, where they jump these ditches from the day they're born. And that's what one of the I used to go to Holland and buy a lot of horses. And one of the breeders there was telling me, you know, he said, this is why these horses jump from the day they're born. They're jumping 12 foot dikes. And he said, guess what? The ones that can't jump drown, you know, and that's what happens to them. And that's why they've become, I mean, most are many Dutch horses that uh, I've had. In fact, the horse that I won my silver medal on was a horse that was given to me because it's going to be put to sleep. Um, but it, uh, if you couldn't put it in anything, it would jump out of any fence that you put it into because it just didn't care. And that's how these horses are. They'll jump anything you put them in front of. If they were round and over their jumping, jumping over their backs, they would be jumping seven feet and they'd be doing it regularly for years. But they just ride them hollow because they can jump so well. You know, it's kind of like a dog that's been, you know, like if you buy a golden retriever, right? They just fetch sticks. You don't have to teach them to do it. That's how these jumping horses are today. The best ones just jump what you put them in front of until they have a wreck, and then they don't anymore. But they get by on on the athleticism of, of the animals instead of having to train them. I mean, back in the old days, if you trained a thoroughbred to jump, you had to know how what you were doing because thoroughbreds, you know, I can tell you how many thoroughbreds I've had get loose in a dressage arena. They won't jump out of a dressage arena because it's not a natural thing for them to do. You know, they'll just go around and around the ring, like looking at the rail over there and going, well, it's only one foot high, but I'm not going to jump over it. So, you know, and the fact that you can take a, you know, most thoroughbreds, you could teach them to jump. I've never had a thoroughbred that I taught to jump that jumped out of fields. Almost every jumping European, especially Dutch horse I've ever had, if they're jumping horses, they jump in the arena, you put them out in the field, they'll just jump right over the fence. You know, and just come back to where they really want to go, you know. So this is what's happened, you know. So people are just buying up these horses. They jump them for a year or two, get by and throw them away and get another one, you know, which is really sad because they're actually missing. They're missing what judging, you know, I was always under the impression my, that learning to ride should make you a better person, you know. And that's what I see missing. I don't see people becoming better people because they ride anymore. I see them becoming obnoxious brats, you know, sitting and screaming at a horse, Daddy, I have to have another one. This one didn't win. Buy me another one, you know. <laughs> and this is the kind, you know, I remember, you know, I'm sure you remember that too, the Queen of England having, you know, when Princess Anne were kids, I doubt the kids do it anymore, but I remember, you know, her out there mucking out her own stalls and they were expected that's how I was. I mean, I grew up on a farm with a hundred horses, but I could have any of them that I wanted. But if I decided they were mine, I had to take care of them. I had to clean them. I had to clean up after them, you know, and do everything involved with them. So, you know, I didn't get 10. I could have had 10 if I wanted, but I only took, a, you know, the ones that I wanted to actually put that much work into, you know, so which I think should be part of it. So, you know, getting back to that, you know, making riding to the point back where it actually is making people be better people. 
<laughs> if you will. We have to control ourselves. If people want to get involved, the Facebook page, if they go to Art to Ride now, but then when you've got the Facebook yep. page for World Dressage Federation, I imagine you're going to let everyone know on the, the Art to Ride Facebook page and then they can go across to the World Dressage Federation. Is that the best way to get involved now? Yes, it is. Well, for as I said, for right now, the best thing to do would be to get on the Art to Ride pages on Facebook. Um, and uh, there, I know, for instance, there's one in Australia. Uh, but the best one to go to is the fans and followers because that's the one that I do all the communicating with everybody and comment on and everybody can put up you know um i have something like 40 associate trainers around the world anybody can put a question on that a video it's it, the idea is i have that's part of my associate trainers um system of them learning is they have to get on there i expect them to answer people's questions and put up videos themselves teaching you know, so everybody has an outline if you don't have a dime to your name but own a horse you can get on these facebook pages and you have trainers around the world who will help you solve your problems and put you in the right direction and answer any question that you have you know and that's what i'd like to see happen on the world research federation page as well and when we will when we get to that okay and then because all those details, you know, we can update them and just send them through and we'll put yeah. them at the bottom of your chat, um, just on the bottom of the page, we'll put all those contact details. But if people now, you know, if someone says, look, I'm already a trainer, I'm already a trainer in my own right, I'm already doing well, I've got a lot of students, if they want to be a judge, how do they go ahead? Is it your current associates that are judges or if they're already judging or, or they'd like to become a judge, what's the best way for that? Um, right now, the best way is to go through an associate trainer Okay. Uh, program but but my associate trainer program is not like it's not one of these things where you're paying thousands of dollars i mean you i i people send me a video showing themselves training showing themselves teaching and i'm willing to promote anybody who i think is training correctly once again i don't you don't have to be my student there's plenty of people out there in the world who know this stuff uh and i think many who've just been waiting for the opportunity for it to come back and you know because i know i'm not the only frustrated older person that's been in, around long enough to have known the difference you know um so by all means uh, i i want you know once again ultimately this will not be about me or about my group or anybody and anybody who thinks that the knowledge that they want to get in touch with me is certainly welcome to do so for instance, I'm I'm talking to other people. I would like to get a few other people on the board now who are already recognized judges around the world. You know, who I'm and I'm talking to a few of those people now about coming on board as board members. You know, to help promote this thing because my my idea is just like Lowell Boomer did with the original USDF, is that you know my goal is this will be something that I will pass on to the world when it's going. I would turn it over to be its own entity. You know, irregardless of me. You know, is my is what my goal is. I hope that it will be around long after I'm gone. And we are also, we have ideas. The idea ultimately would be also to bring in um, a jumping element into this as well. I would love to see uh, jumping classes that get back to correct foundational jumping training. You know, And I've come up with some ideas about that, um, which is a very simple one, for instance, for judging. I think we should have, I think that jumping hollow should be considered um, a dangerous jump, three dangerous jumps and you're eliminated. In other words, you know, right now, unfortunately, as long as you get over the fence and jumping, and that's why it's led jumping. You know, when, when I was young, all jumper, most jumper people started riding hunters and jumpers and the hunters, and they learned to ride, you know, the lower levels of jumping as a hunter rider. And then those people who were willing to do the work to learn the facade and the more collection necessary to, to ride, to really ride jumpers, you know, would go on to that jump. So, bringing in this element that we could have jumper classes and with that being for everyone's safety i don't know if you guys are aware i know the last time i was in australia another one of your young three-day event riders had gotten killed if you look at the number of people dying jumping right now it people should be shocked people should be shocked going to just jumper shows today and watching kids being carted off left and right you know and and no one's saying a word about the fact that these kids are being put on horses that are jumping hollow you know, being forced into the ring. I watched a class a uh, year or so ago that I was short shower at where three kids went, uh, four, four kids from one class went into the one kid who the, and no one said a word about this, couldn't get the horse into the ring. Her trainer comes down and whips the horse in front of the judges, could see it going on, whipped the horse, the horse in the, in the, in sort of aisle leading to the ring, whips it into the ring. And of course, to me, that should have been eliminated right then and there. The horse comes up completely hollow to the first fence, 
crashes through the fence. The horse, I, I don't know how damaged that kid was, but he was unconscious when it left or she left. But this is the kind of thing that should be shocking to people. It should be shocking that 10 professional three-day event riders a year are dying. I was a top three-day event trainer in, on the West Coast here in America for 10 years. No one ever died. Now we've gotten used to the idea that you know six to 10 people every year are dying three-day eventing. Well, there's something wrong with that, right? <laughs> you know? That if you had, you know, if 10 drivers at the NASCAR died in a year, people would be up in arms. They would be going, what's going on here? You know, but this horse thing is kind of, I think everybody, because it's kind of off in its own world now. I mean, the general public really doesn't pay any attention to the horse world anymore, which is getting back to that idea that we talked about what happened before World War II, which is that point I was getting to. I think I cut, 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 I got cut off when we were talking about but that idea is that most people today don't realize almost every horse in the world was eaten during World War II. That when at the end of World War II, there were hardly any horses left in Europe or America. They had all been eaten. Halfway through World War II, we closed down the Fort Riley, uh, Kansas, deep, uh, the cavalry depot, and they butchered 10,000 horses to send them to America. That was the whole thing about, you know, Patton saving the white horses. They were about to be cut up to be food for the troops, you know, so... It, it wasn't for 20 years. The horse business didn't come back and for 20 years. It wasn't until the early, early 60s that we started to see horse shows again. Before World War II, horses were the number one spectator in sport in the world. Polo was the number one spectator sport in the world. And most people don't have any idea of that, right, today. They don't realize that during that 20 years, we lost all of those great trainers and all of those schools, even places like the Spanish Riding School, which... I went to in 1976 to spend a couple of weeks riding there and observing, and I walked away from there. And I don't mind saying it in absolute disgust. There, there, I got because I got to see the training sessions that went on, you know, that the public didn't see. Uh, we sit there in the stands and we're just appalled at people these whipping horses. They would take the stallions into into the corners of the ring, three guys with whips, and just whip the hell out of them, trying to make them pee off. You know, so they don't realize that all these things that, you know, like Spanish Pride School still has this big, it still talks the big game, you know, and puts out the fancy books. And they, and there have been, um, and I would say that Arthur Cartes, Cartes, when I was there, he's about the same age as me. And he then, and he was the only one that when we saw the quadrilles and he was leading the quadrille then, he was only in his twenties and his horses looked good. And as you went back in the line, by the time you got to the sixth, they were basically limping around lame, you know, but they were doing this all for the public. And this people realized that things like the Spanish Rhine School just turned into a, a, a tourist attraction, which is basically what it's run as now, even though they still, you know, um, you know, they talk the talk, <laughs> but I don't think the walk is going on much there anymore. So, but once again, it's because of how much they lost in that 20 year period after World War II, once again, when all this just got it all kind of went away, if you will, and the, and the public interest in it, in a way. So, you know, we're now at this point where the public interest has come back, you know, but in a way that, you know, this gets us to a point where people, not everybody who shows can afford it. Lots of people who have horses can afford to have horses and can afford to ride them and train them correctly and take care of them. But, you know, with the astronomical fees at horse shows and what it costs to ship horses and what you would have to spend to actually compete nationally, you know, and win points and all that kind of thing. It's really out of, that's become out of the zone for for most people that ride yeah. horses these days. Yeah. You know? Well, I just think the knowledge that you've got and the ideas you've got are just extraordinary. I think, you know, we'd certainly love to keep chatting. We've already had you on once and I know your time's valuable. Um, and I, this is for our listeners too. You know, if you're looking for uh, the way I see it, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're thinking, I'd like to do FEI, but I want an alternate way that's not as expensive, that is, you know, it is correct training to bring my horse up because, you know, people want to do the right thing. Whether they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, they really want to do the right thing. And the other thing is, too, I, I like the way that you've really expanded and said, right, if you're just comfortable with walking, that's what you're doing. You know, give your horse a good experience, it's dismount in the ring. So sort of all the way through you're um you're thinking of the horse, you're thinking of the rider, you're thinking of the correct training, and um you know the fact that it's online, you're setting it all up, you've got the levels, you've got the tests to go through to check, you're getting the feedback, um and the whole system of having you know looking at more judges. I just think, wow, this is a really good 
training idea. So I would urge people to join the Art to Ride Facebook page, the fans and followers page, and start to look at these tests and submitting it. And just being able to do it online, I think is just wonderful. So Will, I've got to say thanks for coming on. I'd love to um, talk to you again and see how you catch up and see how we're going. Um, certainly look forward to your next chat. Really happy, Will. So. Always enjoy talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Look, good to talk to you. And if um, if you'd like those contact details, they'll be at the bottom of Will's page, which will be horsechats.com. His, his name, Faber, it's a bit a bit hard, but I think if you go to horsechats.com and search for Will or William, you'll find that it's F-A-E-R-B-E-R if you're interested. Otherwise, just go there. Even if you search for World Dressage Federation, you'll find those details. So thanks, Will, and um, hope to catch up again you're soon. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Excellent. Look forward to talking to you then. Thank you so much. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.